over a thousand generations of Jedi Knights and Guardians of Peace, Justice, Welcome back to People's History of the Old Republic, episode 6.10, I Am Become Death, the Destroyer of Worlds. Last time we did an entire episode on the confrontation at the rebuilt Jedi Enclave on Dantooine, which ended with the death of the remaining Jedi Council. Now we talk about the Battle of Telos IV, the fall of Atris, and the end of Darth Nihilus. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in legends. Knights of the Old Republic 2, Part 10, The Battle of Telos IV. When last we left Mitra Surik, she had just regained consciousness in the rebuilt Jedi Enclave only to find herself all alone with the three lifeless Jedi Masters lying in a heap off to one side. They were killed by Darth Trya after she revealed herself, castigating the Jedi for being big, dumb jerks to the exile, and then Force drained all of them so thoroughly that they couldn't even become one with the Force at death. Brianna, believing the exile had been killed, then arrested Trya and departed for Tila's four and the last known Jedi Master, Atris. Ostensibly, this will allow Atris to pass judgment on Trya, but it's really just another of Trya's many deceptions. This one will induce Surak to go to Telos IV and duel Atris before facing off against Darth Nihilus in the Battle of Telos IV, high above Citadel Station. Nihilus is bringing his Sith fleet to attack and consume Telos IV, just like he did with Katar a year earlier, because of another of Trya's deceptions. If all goes as planned at Telos, Surak will be far stronger of defeating both Atris and Nihilus. Defeating them will further Trya's secondary goal, taking revenge on everyone who betrayed her. Atris is the last living member of the Jedi Council that exiled her circa 3964, and Nihilus cast her out of the Sith Triumvirate earlier in the Sith Civil War. Nihilus also has to be defeated, or his hunger will eventually become such that he could and would consume all life in the galaxy. Again, if you thought Darth Trya wanted to destroy all life by killing the Force, you grossly underestimate and oversimplify. She wants to kill the Force because it has a mind and will of its own, and Trya hates that. It counteracts the free will of living beings. Killing off all life is a comic book movie villain's movie supervillain's goal. Let's give Darth Trya a bit more credit. Darth Cyan was also obviously involved in Trya's second betrayal at the hands of the Sith, but she's still got plans for her bastard surrogate son. If you're confused about all of Trya's schemes and where everything stands after Dantooine, don't worry. We're going to set the stage by bringing all the major players together on and above Telos Four, and then the fireworks begin. Two duels, the Kai HK Factory mission, and the stunning return of Bastel Sean and Admiral Karth Onassi. It's a lot. As we noted at the end of episode 6.9, the companions split up on Dantooine, and that's the last time they are all together. There were 11 on the Ebon Hawk, but Brianna arrested Trya and headed for her old master, Atris. And then there were nine. This also means that Surik and Treya won't have a chance to hash everything out until we reach the Treus core on Malachor V. That's a long time for Surik to go without getting some answers, but at least her remaining companions are around for comfort. 
because she got some really shitty news from the Jedi Masters. In addition to all that stuff about possibly being the death of the Force and the death of all life in the galaxy and the end of the Jedi Order, the Council also said that she really didn't have any friends, and that was just really mean. I mean, yes, we're being a little facetious, but still an awful thing to say. Imagine being told that uh, people don't actually like you and they only hang around with you because of a slavish impulse. They only like you, listen to you, confide in you, and befriend you because they are being subconsciously told to do so by the by the force bonds. And on top of that, you're constantly leeching energy from them, only acting as a conduit. So not only does everyone actually hate you, you're also a literal drain on every relationship you have. That's a that's just a really fucked up thing to say, but like most things the Jedi Master said, it was about 15% correct and 85% bullshit, give or take a little bit on the percentages. While it is true that the wound in the Force that Sarek carries does constantly act as a Force black hole, drawing others in, and that does, uh, and that effect is even greater when the person is Force sensitive, it's not a conscious choice. Sarek has no control over how the Force bonds form or with whom they are formed being told being told all that was even more painful for Sarek given her lonely exile and all the strides she's made to reconnect both with herself and the wider galaxy she thought she had done well to assemble a group of loyal companions who helped stabilize the republic and reunite the jedi however the words of the council caused Sarek to doubt her place and she attempted to withdraw after returning to the ebon hawk and Sarek might have sunk back into her depression and loneliness too, if not for aid and comfort from an unlikely source. At last, it's Michael's time to shine. Every companion gets a big moment in the spotlight in KOTOR 2, and this is Michael's. Admittedly, we've done a disservice to McCall and Michael throughout the series. Sure, he's wide-eyed and still holds an awkward, though not creepy, boyhood crush on Sarek, but he's also the source of most of our background on the Jedi Civil War. This is Civil War in the game's big Revan retcon. More importantly, at this moment, he's also a good friend to the Exile and comforts her in her time of need. After the confrontation in the Enclave, Surik sulks in her cabin, mulling over the words of the Jedi Council. Even though we know the Jedi Council to be corrupt failures, Surik still had some measure of faith that they would band together to defeat the Sith. Instead, they tried to cut her off from the Force and send her back into exile, but now they're dead and now she's depressed again. In walks Michael, who, despite being awkward and naive, is about to come through with a clutch pep talk. Michael says that he and all the other companions follow her out of choice, either for personal gain or because they believe in the mission, but either way, it was still a conscious decision. Michael says the Jedi Masters didn't understand Sirk because they fell prey to the danger of being a Jedi. He says, quote, when one chooses to separate themselves from others, chooses to live a life of isolation, denying what makes them a feeling being. It is easy to make such judgments, end quote. Michael knows the Jedi Council lost touch with reality and closed themselves off from the very beings they were supposed to protect. Forgoing emotions and attachments may satisfy part of the Jedi Code, but it also caused them to ignore other parts of the Code entirely. In contrast with the Jedi Masters, McCall says of Surik, there is, quote, there is no danger in what you represent other than your humanity. 
you change others, but I do not believe that it is due to the force. I believe it is because you are a natural leader, because you feel connected to the people around you. Where they look at you and see the death of the force, I look at you and see the hope for all life. Take strength from your connection to others. Do not forsake them as you did in exile. End quote. Michael spells it out for Cirque. Yes, the Jedi Council accused her of many things, and there was some truth in what they said, but their conclusions were all wrong because they had lost touch with their own humanity. Much like the Jedi Order in the prequel trilogy, their Old Republic counterparts taught that emotion, attachment, and love were traits to be avoided. They forbade intimate relationships, kept the Order cloistered away from the galaxy, and they lost touch. Vruk Lamar, Kavar, and Zezkael couldn't understand that Surik had been using her power to serve the galaxy because they forgot what it was like to care about the galaxy long ago. They might have been masters, but they were no longer Jedi. But they were no Jedi, at least not anymore. Michael's speech does the trick and snaps Surik out of her funk. As we're about to see, Michael has a bad habit of being really insightful about a great many things. Um, it's been so long that you may not remember, but uh, KOTOR 2 did a shitload of retcons to create background info for the Mandalorian Wars, the Jedi Civil War, the Sith Civil War, Revan, Malak, and others. Uh, much of that is communicated by Michael. He's a historian by trade, so he knows a lot about the past few years, and he's far less cryptic than Kreia. Michael is the one who first tells us the name for the war that took place in KOTOR 1, uh, which didn't yet have a formal name. Michael also gives us a name for the conflict that is ongoing during KOTOR 2, uh, calling, it the, calling it a Sith Civil War, though calling it a war seems a bit much given everything. Um, that's not actually a retcon, but it fits. He's uh, also chock full of new information on the Mandalorian Wars that does retcon and fill in holes for us like the uh like how the loss of so many jedi from 3964 to 3960 created a knowledge and training vacuum in the order this left hundreds of padawans without masters padawans who filtered back out into the galaxy and never became jedi michael is one such padawan and surik was to have been his master before leaving for the mandalorian wars herself of course, KOTOR 2 also provides us with most of the info about Malachor 5, the end of the Mandalorian Wars, but his biggest contribution is the game's take on Revan. In KOTOR 1, Revan is presented as a tactical genius who fell to the dark side after trying to do the right thing, only to be redeemed after having his mind wiped. Sure, he was a bad guy, but it wasn't premeditated. He just went a bit too far in trying to protect the Republic and fell. KOTOR 2 throws cold water all over that idea and presents the Revan we, now, we know now. The master tactician turned war criminal who ordered a super weapon unleashed, which would be bad enough if he hadn't also carefully planned it to maximize casualties to all his enemies, both internal and external. Revan, as Supreme Commander, arranged his forces so that his enemies within the Republic and Jedi would be destroyed along with the bulk of the Mandalorians. Malachor V wasn't a bloodbath, it was a carefully orchestrated bloodletting of Revan's enemies, no matter their alignment in the conflict. It's a far cry from his story in the first game. 
This is a purposeful decision made by Obsidian as they sought to further complicate the central character of the first game and another testament to the sequel's unflinching iconoclasm. Michael's estimation about Revan and his motives is confirmed by HK-47, whom we will discuss momentarily, and Dark Triad. Michael is full of fun facts that we simply take for granted as part of the story now. It's a loyalty quest via exposition, just like any historian would love. And we truly did the character a disservice because he adds so much to the story we couldn't reference. So I guess this whole thing about Michael is like one big footnote, something else a historian would love. While gaining his loyalty, Michael would agree to train as a Jedi Counselor under Surik's tutelage which is pretty much what he had always wanted from the time he was a Padawan on Dantooine before Surik left for the Mandalorian Wars. Eventually, Michael develops into a powerful and capable Jedi who becomes the leader of the Order after the end of this game, but he never loses his childlike adoration of Surik. He loves her in a non-romantic way and respects her greatly, but we should never forget he's still a big dork with a silly haircut. After that detour to cover Michael, it's time to put the pieces into place for the battle. Uh, Treya has at least four separate plans in play at Telos 4, so let's look at each chronologically before the Ebon Hawk lands. In episode 6.8, Kreia snuck away from the group after defeating Vaklu and revived his second lieutenant, Colonel Tobin. Kreia lied to Tobin, telling him that the Jedi had revealed themselves and were rebuilding at a secret academy on Telos IV. Tobin took this information to Darth Nihilus, who amassed his Sith fleet and prepared to attack the world. Nihilus burns with hunger as he hasn't consumed Force energy since Qatar. Uh, without the Jedi or another world of force, uh, full of Force sensitives, no planet has the necessary Force energy to sate the Dark Lord's growing hunger. If Nihilus' hunger goes unchecked, he will eventually begin, begin consuming every world he can find until he destroys all life. Knowing this, Kreia lied about the Jedi revealing themselves to induce Nihilus to come to Telos IV so that he could meet his demise at the hands of the one thing that could stop him, the exile. Also, Kreia gets revenge on Nihilus for casting her out of the Sith, two birds, one stone. Next, in episode 6.9, Kreia spoke to Michael through the Force, warning him of the imminent Sith attack on Telos IV from Nihilus. Michael used this info to contact his Republic handlers under Car Admiral Carthonassi because Nihilus has a fleet with him and that demands a counterweight. Onassi gets the warning and prepares the Republic fleet to defend Telos IV and counter the Sith though neither fleet will arrive in the system until after Sirik finishes with Atris. Then, in episode 6.9, Darth Treya lied to Brianna about killing the exile, which caused Brianna to arrest Treya and bring her to Telos IV to be judged by Atris. This lie moves Treya into place, acting as bait for Sirik. Finally, Sirik learns from Atten that Brianna intends to have Atris execute Treya, which would kill Sirik due to their force bond. Thus, Treya's lie moves Sirik, the fourth and final piece, into place. Sirik will go to Telos IV to prevent an execution, but will find and duel Atris instead, and then be on hand when Darth Nihilus arrives. 
Believing that Atreus will execute Traia and kill Surik in the process, Atten Rand pilots the Yiban Hawk from Dantooine to Telos 4 and drops out of hyperspace just above Citadel Station. However, we won't visit the station just yet because the fleets in the big battle won't happen until after Surik confronts Atreus. During the trip, a cutscene shows Surik meditating in her cabin where she's interrupted by Visas Mar. The exile and her Mira Luca student discuss some of the events from Dantooine, and Mar echoes the statements made by Michael. She says that the Jedi Master said those things about Surik and her Force Bonds because they have forgotten what it's like to be human and what it means to lead others. Mar also says that she believes in their cause and will die to protect Surik. Visa shows no sign of being choked out by Cryo on Dantooine, but that was cut from the final game, so that's probably why. After this moment ends, we see the Iban Hawk move around Citadel Station and toward the frigid polar region in the north, where the hidden Jedi Academy is and where the last Jedi Master waits. It's been quite a while, but in episode 6.3, Surik and Atreus had it out in the Secret Academy. They had a 15-minute debate that doubled as a boss fight, not unlike the confrontation on Dantooine we discussed last episode. Back in 6.3, Surik and Atreus rehashed the Mandalorian Wars, Surik's exile, and Atreus's desire to see Surik executed for her crimes. This time, the two will debate some more, but will also duel ferociously, both in the main chamber, where they argued last time, and in Atreus's mysterious personal quarters. This is the part where the player learns much in-game lore we've been taking for granted. It's the first time we hear Darth Trina's name, it's where we learn that she's actually serious in her goal to destroy the Force, and we learn how far Atreus has truly fallen to the dark side. The game was changed drastically due to deadlines, so that the character of Atreus had to change too, and much of her story was removed. She was supposed to be involved throughout the story instead of a character the player only encounters at the beginning and end, bookending the game. As the Ebon Hawk docks at the secret Jedi Academy, a cutscene showing dialogue between Atreus and Darth Treya begins. Atreya is still wearing her old Kreia outfit since she hasn't had time to return to Malachor 5 and somehow escape from Brianna, but that's never explained. Uh, there, the entire conversation takes place in Atris's meditation chamber, but we don't get a good look at the entire room just yet. We see Atris facing toward the camera and Treya walking up behind her, but never coming into Atris's view. Atris knows that someone else is present, but she never turns to look. To never turns to look at Treya, uh, though that's likely because Treya is overwhelming Atris's mind with the Force. Uh, there's an entire sequence of this dialogue that was cut early on that basically changed some parts of the story. There, Treya says that she asked the Exile to be cast out of the Jedi Order in the first place, a, re a request that Atris complied with. It also would have retconned Revan even further, making the bombing of Telos 4 in 3958 not a loyalty test of Saul Karath, as KOTOR, 2, or KOTOR 1 implied, but as a message from Darth Revan to the Republic. But that section of their conversation was cut and not even available in the Restored Content mod. So we're left with Atris staring off into the distance past the camera and Darth Treya behind her, ever the Master Puppeteer. Uh, Treya is going to use this opportunity to demonstrate to Atris just how far she has fallen because through, 
throughout everything that's happened and everything she's done, Atris still thought she was a Jedi and that she hadn't fallen to the dark side. Even though she hid in a secret Jedi Academy with mountains of accumulated knowledge and she had a Force-sensitive individual at the Academy for years, she didn't try to help or rebuild the Jedi. She knew where the remaining Jedi Masters had gone, and she kept tabs on the Republic, but didn't offer to help either. In fact, she had receded so far into the darkness of her little depressive hole that she started rumors that she died at Qatar in 3952 with the rest of the Jedi Order. She spread that rumor even though she was the one who leaked the info about the secret conclave in the first place in an attempt to lure out the Sith. Even after all that, Atris still thought she was a Jedi. A big part of Trya's revenge is that she knows is that her enemies know that they failed. Last episode, we noted that the reborn Sith Lord could have simply drained the force from the Jedi Masters to protect Zurich, but then they wouldn't die knowing they were wrong and she was right. Try is going to do the same thing to Atris by making her understand the, the extent of her fall. Trya's spitefulness is legendary, and if it's not, it should be by the end of this series. In this way, Trya seems like Atris's conscience, standing just out of sight on Atris's shoulder, pushing her to reach certain conclusions and realizations. Atris identifies herself as a Jedi Master, quote, the last historian of the Jedi, the last of the Jedi, end quote, but Trya isn't interested in anything so petty as a title. There must also be understanding. When Atris accuses her unseen intruder of being Sith, Trya doesn't deny it, instead saying, quote, The title is not who I am. It is not what I believe. For you, it is different. Know that there was once a Darth Trya, and that she cast aside that role, was exiled, and found a new purpose. But there must always be a Darth Trya, one that holds the knowledge of betrayal. Who has been betrayed in their heart, and who will betray in turn, end quote. So this line sounds confusing as hell in the final version of the game, but it was supposed to be an elaborate way of pointing out that Atris could assume the title of Darth Trya, just as Crya had twice before. It's also the first time we hear the name of a Sith Lord in the game, which seems really odd for a game subtitled The Sith Lords. Atris was a Jedi once many years ago, but by this time she'd fully fallen to the dark side after bathing in Sith knowledge. She told herself this forbidden knowledge is being used to find and catch the Sith, but Trya knows that isn't true, and deep down, so does Atris. Trya knows what it's like to be a Jedi historian who falls, who was betrayed. But whereas Trya was betrayed by the Jedi and the Sith, Atris betrayed herself. She attempts to blame Surik, but Trya won't have it. Finally, Atris begins to realize that she is lost within the dark side and asks how it happened. Trya says that it was never battle that called to the Atris, like it did to Revan and Surik, it was knowledge she craved and knowledge that felled her. Atris finally realizes that she has fallen under the sway of the darkness. She makes another half-hearted stab at blaming it on the exile, but much as before, Treya ain't having it. Darth Treya says that Atris betrayed herself and confirms that Surik will soon arrive at the Academy to fight Atris. Knowing that Atris has accepted the truth, Treya, still unseen, turns to leave the medita meditation chamber. Before she does, however, Treya can't help but make one final biting comment, quote, It is such a quiet thing to fall. 
far more terrible is to admit it, end quote. The screen goes dark and we're left to chew on that line. It's the last we will hear from Trya until Malachor 5. In the background of the meditation chamber, we can begin to see that the red hue of the room comes from three rows of small red pyramids, three rows of small red pyramids stacked vertically that line the circular walls like lanterns. Except those aren't lanterns uh, of lights. They're dozens of Sith holocrons all activated, and it's now clear where Atrus got all that Sith knowledge to bathe in. In 3996, during the Great Sith War, there was only one known Sith holocron in the galaxy, the so-called Dark Holocron that Jedi Master Odin Ur kept until his murder at the hands of Exar Kun. Just 45 years later, in 3951, Atris had at least 40 Sith holocrons situated around her meditation chamber. We will revisit the holocrons momentarily, and we will get to hear from them too. But first, Brianna walks into the large circular room where Sirik and Atris argued the last time. This room is an exact recreation, uh, uh, recreation of the Coruscant Jedi Council chambers and is connected to Atrus's meditation chamber by a sloping narrow ramp. In the meeting chamber, Brianna finally comes face to face with her five half-sisters for the first time since leaving the Academy and forsaking her vows to Atrus. She's now persona non grata, and all five handmaidens are present to fight Brianna, who was called the last handmaiden, as she was supposedly the weakest of the group. But Brianna was never the last of them. She was just the only one who could think for herself, and now she's a Jedi. The five handmaidens soon lie unconscious. Originally, this battle was meant to double as a test for Brianna, The handmaidens would be dressed in black with black makeup to match the fall of their master, and they would continually goad Brianna to see if she would give in to hatred and kill her half-sisters. Instead, it's just a fight that isn't that difficult, even that difficult in the first place. Turns out the handmaidens aren't so tough without the rules of their little sparring ring. Brianna tries to warn the handmaidens that Atris has fallen to the dark side, but to no avail. Brianna then duels her half-sisters successfully, but leaves them alive only for Atris to show up. And though Brianna has become a formidable Jedi under search tutelage, she's no match for Atris. If you have a male exile, this encounter takes on romantic overtones as Brianna can romance the exile, and Atris has unresolved feelings for a male exile. Brianna would try to get a word in edgewise, but Atris cuts her off in anger, demanding to know why she broke her oath and trained in the ways of the Force. Brienne is given no time to explain and is instead forced to duel Atrus, who wields a red lightsaber. Atrus eventually downs her former protege, torturing her with force lightning before Mitra Sark shows up to save the day. Not unlike how Trya saved her on Dantooine, in fact, it's essentially the same scenario as a helpless opponent is about to be punished by a supposed Jedi Master, only to be saved at the last moment. Sirik taunts Atris for once again wanting to execute a defenseless prisoner, which is not the Jedi way. Atris is fully immersed in the dark side and ready to kill the exile as if she could. There will be no war of words this time, just a duel between two bitter old foes trying to kill one another. Sirik ignites her lightsabers, one yellow and one purple, while Atris ignites her red blade and the fight begins. 
Atreus is one of the game's tougher opponents because she continually abuses her force powers like Force Drain, just like the player can and should. But she's no match for Mitra Surik and so retreats to her meditation chamber. This gives Surik and Atreus a chance to chat before once again crossing Shabers. The collection of Sith holocrons are now in full view. The player can see at least 30 of them lining the walls, with more off to one side of the screen. Atris says that the, secret of the holo- that the secrets of the holocron are hers to protect and use to stop the Sith. Surik counters that Atris has already fallen to the dark side, but Atris says that's no longer her name. This possibly implies that she's taken on the title Darth Treya, or that she's actually lost her mind, probably a bit of both. Atris says that she's finally accepted her place on the dark side after denying it for so long, claiming that the old woman Surik travels with made her see the truth. Here, Atris also confirms that the first Jedi Purge was Treya's idea in the first place, and then she gets cryptic about the impending arrival of both the Sith and Republic fleets in the Telos Force system. Atris then confirms that she was the one who arranged for Surik to return to the known galaxy, leaked information about her past to the Sith, and set all of this in motion. Atris used the exile as bait to lure the Sith out just like she had done with Darth Nihilus at Qatar. She wouldn't dare risk her own life, deeming it too precious to put in harm's way. If you haven't realized yet, all these so-called Jedi Masters are cowards. Atris even says, quote, I knew what could happen on Qatar, but it had to be done to make the Sith reveal themselves, end quote. She killed the Jedi, trying to lure out the Sith, and then use the exile as bait in another attempt. Now the now now they've both killed a planet, but at least Surik didn't knowingly damn the Jedi to do it. Surik attempts to defuse the situation again by saying they don't need to fight, but Atris has waited too long for this execution. The two begin to duel again, but Atris is injured and unable to continue the fight. She asks she asks Surik to execute her and be done with it, but the exile refuses and asks Atris to return to the light again. This comes as a great surprise to Atris, who thought that Surik would only seek vengeance, not the path of redemption. Finally, seeing reason and probably fearing death, Atris relents and begins answering the exile's questions. With the fall of Atris, there are only three active Jedi left in the galaxy and none in this game, though that will change on Malachor 5. The holocrons exude a sentience of some kind, or at least an understanding of what is being said by the two women. They hiss in unison if Atris attempts to answer certain questions. When Sarek asks about Kraya's true identity or where the Sith are striking from, the camera zooms in as the holocrons hiss attempting to silence Atris, though she does tell Surik that the Sith are striking from Malachor V, and that is where Trya went. Like the other Jedi Masters, Atris believes that the Sith are somehow spawned from Surik due to her actions at Malachor V, without realizing that other wounds like Surik's exist and that Nihilus is one. Atris says, quote, Yes, you are an echo in the Force, a hollow space, 
Where it has been wounded, it creates places where the force is difficult to hear and difficult to find one's way, and you carry it with you always, end quote. And at long last, we begin to understand the triad's endgame in all of this, the death of the force. It's hinted at during the story, but Atreus spells it out. Trial wishes to create a wound in the Force so powerful that its echoes would travel to the edges of the galaxy, blinding all to the Force. Trial intends to accomplish this using Surik at Malachor V. If the Exile attempts to avoid the engagement, Trial will sacrifice herself at the Trias core, killing Surik via their Force bond. Atreus believes that such talk is folly and it's impossible to silence the Force. Nevertheless, she encourages the Exile to go to Malachor V to stop this madness because, quote, one person at the right time, at the right moment, can change the face of the galaxy or end it, end quote. This information is overwhelming to Sir, who attempts to pro- protest, but Atris is adamant, saying that Trya proclaims to be something outside the Sith and Jedi, quote, she is something else, something that seeks balance through destruction, end quote. Balance is an interesting choice of words given the discussions of balance in the prequel trilogy. Regardless, Atris doubts that any of them will survive as she senses that Darth Nihilus and the Sith fleet have arrived. How can anyone hope to stand against a dark lord who consumed a world with a single word? Still, Surik asks that Atris return to the light, and the former Jedi agrees, finding redemption where she never expected. On the way out, Sarek and Brianna reunite. Brianna is thankful that Sarek yet lives and agrees to continue the fight, finally revealing her true name for the first time at this moment. Returning to the Ebon Hawk, the group lifts off for Citadel Station, but there's a problem. Baldur and HK-47 seem to have slipped off unnoticed. But the but where oh god, but where could they have gone? Uh, at a time like this, what could be so important? On the surface of Telos 4, Bowder and HK-47 enter the old military bunker that the companions fought through in episode 6.2. HK-47 has picked up the signal of other HK assassination droids from within the bunker and intends to investigate with Bowder along for the ride. As you probably remember, the infamous HK droid manufacturing plant mission was cut from the game, though it was later restored and is now available in the RCM. It is probably the the most well-known piece of cut content from the game and eventually became a canonical part of of the Legends continuity after it was referenced in 2006, the new essential guide to droids. Lead writer Chris Avalon has also confirmed rumors that Baldur was supposed to die helping HK-47 access the facility. But because the mission was cut and Baldur's fate is not directly mentioned in the reference book or elsewhere, he was considered to have lived through the events of KOTOR 2. So in a very real way, Baldur was saved in-universe because of the real-world cuts to the game, thus making Baldur the only one who was happy that Obsidian was forced to cut content from KOTOR 2. Even in the RCM, the mission is still difficult to access, which was intentional. The player has to complete all of HK-47's dialogue trees and encounter a few HK-50 units that pop up in the game with HK-47 as a party member. We won't explain the whole thing here, 
But suffice to say, if you play the RCM version, search online for what you need to do uh, because it's a multi-step thing to access this mission. Incidentally, Bowder doesn't show up in the restored versions of the mission, so we'll just imagine that he helped HK-47 infiltrate the factory and then took a much-deserved break until after the game ends. Despite the hype, the HK manufacturing plant mission is actually kind of long and repetitive, but there is some excellent nihilistic HK speak going on. The plot is simple, at least until the conclusion. HK-47 infiltrates the plant that is controlled and fully staffed by HK-50 droids who undergo rigorous training in many disciplines. We find out the history of the facility. It was built by Darth Revan to create an army of loyal droids to complete covert assassinations across the galaxy. HK-47 was used as the template for the HK-50 droids. However, the plant went dormant after Darth Revan was betrayed until 3955 when Goto took control of it. Goto took the Goto brought the factory online and sent the droids out into the galaxy to find a Jedi or Sith to help in stabilization efforts. Of course, his instructions were misinterpreted by the HK-50s and ended up in a lot of dead Jedi and Sith. When HK-47 arrived, the facility had been operating for some time without orders because Goto has been adventuring with Zurich. HK-47 hates the HK-50s because he considers them inferior copies of himself. The HK-50s hate HK-47 because he's an obsolete version of their perfected forms. However, HK-47 and the HK-50s are built with programming that forbids them from harming other HK units unless ordered to do so by their master. HK-47 can't just blow the bunker because of built-in self-preservation programming that prevents suicide. So HK-47 is forced to talk to to the three lead HK-50 units about their capabilities, finding out that they are all outfitted with proton cores that detonate under limited circumstances. HK-47 learns of the programming that stops HK droids from harming one another, but seems to find a workaround while running through the facility. A repair droid on the sublevel can deactivate HK-47 self-preservation programming, which means he can attack the HK-50s. Additionally, HK-51 prototypes were built but never put into the field, So HK-47 must decide whether to reactivate the HK-51s, making them totally loyal to him, or leave them be. The story isn't fleshed out because the option to have HK-47 assimilate the HK-50s under his control was never incorporated. The level design itself was about 80% done before it was cut. Despite not being an available option when playing the mission in the RCM, the new essential guide to droids said that hk-47 worked with the hk-50s gaining some level of control over them so we'll go with that answer since it was canonized even though it doesn't make a ton of sense based on available data then again the content was never finished so we take what we can get the hk manufacturing plant was meant to be the culmination of hk-47's story despite being everyone's favorite droid and an all-around badass most of the time hk-47 has very little agency to speak of like most droids he's beholden to a master and as we noted earlier he can't even end his own life at the beginning of this game hk-47 is a heap of parts in a storage closet on the evan hawk eventually he's rebuilt but most of his memories are totally gone At one point, HK-47 figures out that someone has locked the nav computer but is incapacitated by T3M4 and his memory of that event is raced. 
T3 locked the nav computer under Revan's orders. Throughout the game, Surik restores HK-47's memories and functions, causing the droid to remember his old master Revan and other helpful tips like how to kill Jedi. The answer is quite similar to Atten Rand's answer. You injure the Padawan to throw the master off, endanger or harm civilians to draw the Jedi in, etc., HK-47's comments about Revan form another part of the backbone of the game's retcon of our beloved player character from KOTOR 1. HK-47 studied uh, Revan's battles many times after regaining his memories and concluded that Malachor 5 was a precision strike. HK-47 says, quote, Observation, Master, I do not believe that the Mandalorians were the true target at Malachor. I believe that the intention was to destroy the Jedi, break their will, and make them loyal to Revan. I do not know if you examine the records of the deaths on Malachor, but you cannot escape uh, you cannot escape that many of the Jedi and Republic soldiers who died were not Revan's strongest supporters. Observation, I believe that Revan was cleaning house at Malachor V. What ones did not die became Revan's allies against the Republic. See, even when we discuss HK-47's loyalty mission, it ends up being about Revan anyway. Though he does provide one of the better definitions of love that has ever been given. In the game, Sirk asks for love advice from an assassination droid because she's hopeless in relationships. After Surik asks if HK-47 knows what love is, he responds, quote, Answer. Many organic meatbags find that question difficult to answer, Master. But I believe I can provide you with a satisfactory definition. Definition. Love is making a shot to the knees of a target 120 kilometers away using an Aerotech sniper rifle with a trilight scope, end quote. And really, who are we to argue with HK-47? Now that we've checked off all the randomly inserted companion loyalty quests for cramming into this episode, it's time to get back to Citadel Station. At and Rand lands the Ebon Hawk on the station floating above Telos 4, and the crew learn the bad news. Darth Nihilus and his Sith fleet just dropped out of hyperspace and are beginning to attack. Lieutenant Gren delivers the news, and he's trying to scramble what few fighters the TSF has at its disposal, but that's going to be a short fight. Luckily, Sirk's actions in rebuilding Shattered Worlds will now pay dividends in the form of allies and reinforcements. Lieutenant Gren was able to arm his soldiers because Sirk helped break up the smuggling ring on the station the first time around. Captain Riken is also on the station, leading a contingent of royalist troops from Andron, while members of the Kunda militia from Dantooine are assembled under the command of Captain Zaron. And, of course, a sizable group of Mandalorians are present from Duxun. They are a brave and hardy lot, but they're still all going to die because the Sith have a fleet and they've barely got enough soldiers to defend the station. If this is the beginning to sound much like the end of Mass Effect 3, where all the ships from different factions and races come together to stop the Reapers, well, it is definitely a lot like that. Except for the fact that KOTOR 2 came out eight years before Mass Effect 3 and we are. And there are no talking child AIs to give you one of three possible options. Instead... There's a woman with three floating lightsabers, so that's a change of pace. The Mandalorian forces will aid Surik, Kandris Ordo, and Visus Mar in the attack on Nihilus' flagship, the Ravager. 
the rest of Cirque's companions and the and the assembled personnel from Onderon, and Dantooine will help defend Citadel Station as the Sith have already created one beachhead on the station that had to be cleared. It's almost a good plan if only they had a fleet, and wouldn't you know it, just when things look really bad, the Republic fleet drops out of hyperspace unannounced. Admiral Carthonassi is leading the defense from his flagship, a hammerhead corvette called Sojourn, and intends to stop the Sith from destroying his homeworld this time around. Immediately, Sith fighters break off their attacks on Citadel Station and begin a massive aerial battle against the Republic. Hundreds of Sith and Republic ships zoom past, dogfighting for supremacy above Telos IV. Meanwhile, Sarek, Mandalore, and Visus Mar have taken a transport shuttle from Citadel Station to the Ravager. Nihilus' flagship is massive, dwarf- dwarfing all other ships in the battle, but if the Republic fleet can hold off the rest of the fleet, Sarek and her crew might have a chance. The transport shuttle docks on the Ravager, and it's clear that the ship shouldn't be able to fly. The hull is breached in a dozen places, and it's covered in blaster scoring from the Battle of Malachor V. By all known logic, the ship shouldn't be spaceworthy, but as we all know, the Force is a powerful ally. As soon as the transport docks, the Companions and their Mandalorian allies begin the assault. A cadre of Sith troopers now guard the entry point, but Mandalorians do tend to have a flair for the dramatic, and they don't let us down here. Sith troopers assemble, but a large explosion destroys the door and kills them all. Just like an action hero, Kandor Sordo strolls onto the Ravager through the fire and smoke left from the door breach. He finds out that he finds out that the rest of his Mandalorian team made it on board with four proton cores. Each will be placed in weak points around the ship so it can be blown to hell on the way out. In the final release version, there's a broken dialogue chain and a side quest that involves a plot by the Mandalorians to betray Surik and use the ship to attack Citadel Station. This is also one of the few places Mandalore's real name is spoken, but it got cut. When discussing the proton bonds, Kandor's checks to ensure they are hidden from Republic scanners, which is odd because the Republic would want the Ravager blown to hell. This is presumed to be part of the cut outcome that had the Ravager plunging into Citadel Station, knocking it out of orbit. Oddly, art of the Ravager plowing into the station made it into the official game strategy guide. Betraying the Republic was never really referenced again, so who knows what what would have happened. But that broken dialogue rightly confuses a lot of players. Once Surik, Mandalore, and Visus begin fighting their way through the Ravager, they must arm four proton bombs so that the ship will detonate and not crash into Citadel Station. Most of the Ravager involves clearing rooms of high-level elite enemies occasionally punctuated by finding interesting side rooms. Though the side rooms are optional, they are quite useful. The first one is Visus Mar's old meditation chambers. The first time we saw her in an early cutscene, the room was filled with a red-hued mist lit by numerous columns, each covered in runes and symbols glowing red. Visus was sent. When she returns, she asks her to wait for just a moment so she can center herself before fighting her former master. Both the columns and the mist now glow a gentle blue. Visus is a Jedi. In her old chambers, Visus reaches out deeply into the Force and, for the first time since it happened, she reaches out to her homeworld, Qatar. Her body was a prison and she was too traumatized to think of Qatar and the terrible loss of life that occurred. 
But now Visa's Mar remembers her homeworld and accepts what happened and that it cannot be changed. However, the Miraluga vows to defeat Darth Nihilus, not for revenge or hatred, but for the sake of all life in the galaxy. Visa's Mar will honor the memory of her people by stopping Nihilus. For her troubles, Visus is rewarded with a stat bump in force points because she let go of the hate in her heart and came to terms with her trauma. The game literally encourages the player to seek in-game therapy by giving characters stat bonuses for working through their issues. The other important side room is also usually the easiest to overlook. Near the bridge where they will do not dual Nihilus, the companions find Colonel Tobin. A lot of players miss what Tobin has to say because he's in a side room and even if you go in there, he's a huge asshole. Since it takes a little while for Tobin to open up, many players either kill or leave Tobin to his fate because he's such a dick, even though he's the key to understanding the encounter on the Ravager. Since Darth Nihilus speaks in an indecipherable screeching language, the job of providing exposition for the events on the ship falls to Tobin. It's immediately obvious that Tobin is not doing well because his skin has lost all its color and now looks gray. He's lost a lot of weight and his skin is barely hanging on his bones. His eyes are almost fully atrophied. In short, Tobin is close to becoming a zombie, fully under the control of Nihilus, just like all the others who crew the giant vessel. Much like her discussion with Atrus, Surik's chat with Tobin is a lure dump via exposition. Tobin says that Nihilus provided the soldiers to Vaklu on Onderon, but Tobin now realizes the Sith Lord cared nothing for his homeworld. It was all a ruse to help further destabilize the Republic, making it easier for Nihilus to feed his insatiable hunger. Visus chimes in, quote, in his presence all life dies, end quote. Uh, Tobin says that the ship and all the zombie crew are held together by Nihilus's will with only a thin particle barrier used to keep in breathable used to keep in breathable air. Mandalore then puts it together, realizing that the Ravager was taken from the ship graveyard at Malachor 5, along with many other ships in the Sith fleet. Nihilus is of Malachor 5, just like Surik. There is a threat to all life in this game, but it's not Surik's wound or Kreia's scheme to kill the Force. It's Nihilus. The most aptly, ty- the most aptly named Sith Lord exists only to, fe- to feed his hunger, to bring quiet peace to the incessant noise of the universe through death. The dialogue with Tobin is also where the player starts to see how Trya's plans have set everything at Tila's foreign motion. Tobin says that Nihilus came to Telos for to feed on life here, having heard there were more than a hundred Jedi on the planet. When Sirik literally laughs this assertion off, Tobin remains defiant, saying he received the info from the old woman who traveled with Sirik on Onderon. He said that Nihilus was forced to come to Telos for to sate his hunger, which can now only be quenched by feeding on planetary scales. However, all the companions are adamant that there is no resurgent Jedi Order on Tila's floor. The world is still mostly a wasteland of acidic vapor. Forget about having enough enough Force users to feed. Tila's floor doesn't even have that much overall Force energy that comes from living things like plants, animals, and people. Tila's floor has almost none of that. 
Nihilus would get more force energy from a small moon covered only in grass than he would from Telos for. The reason Nihilus could fully feed a Katara was because of the gathered Jedi, the inherently force-sensitive Miraluka, and the other life on the planet. The more power in the force a being has, the more force energy they have. Tobin knows that the companions are telling the truth and despairs for Tila's force it will meet the same fate as Katar. Tobin now understands that Onderon will eventually suffer the same fate as the other worlds Nihilus has consumed. Without the amount of force energy found within Jedi or other force users, Nihilus will simply have to feed on the minimal force energy found on other worlds until he consumes them all. Nihilus is power incarnate, seeing other beings as dust motes in a storm, a grain upon a beach, and as insignificant as the body that orbits the graveyard of Malachor. End quote. In short, Nihilus is the death of all life. He's the wound in the force the Jedi Master saw killing the galaxy, and the wound who purposely leeches life from all those around him. As the expedition dump wraps up, Tobin finally decides to do something decent for, quite possibly, the first time in his life. To protect Onderon, Tobin agrees to detonate the proton bombs on the Ravager when needed. The Ravager is the end of the story for both Visus and Candorus, but as we said, we've already done too many character summaries this time around. However, before we get to the bridge, there is a cutscene between Visus and Candorus that was removed from the final release. Sarek's two companions have a frosty relationship and snipe at one another during the mission, but they become much closer after sharing a brief moment. When Candorus is injured in one of the numerous firefights, Visa says that he will survive as she sees many battles left in his future. This talk reminds Ordo of Revan, and he relays a he relays a story of one of their last conversations in the outer room before before Revan went into the unknown regions. Mandalore relays that Revan said, quote, the Mandalorian wars were our doom and that we had been deceived that it had been our decision to wage war on the Republic. Revan said the Mandalorians didn't invade Republic space 10 years ago because it was our choice. We were tricked. Our entire people sacrificed as pawns and never knew it. He said there was a war coming that it that was waiting out in the unknown regions in the dark, waiting for us to destroy each other, end quote. Revan didn't mean the Sith Civil War, though. He meant the great conflict in the offing, the one that would s- serve as a basis for KOTOR 3. Mandalore says the war Revan spoke of would be, quote, more terrible against an against an evil we couldn't even begin to comprehend, a war of belief that had been fought for thousands of years, end quote. Even though the dialogue was cut, Kreia said essentially the same thing when the Ebonhawk landed on Korriban and when she read Ordo's mind on Duxun, so that all still made it into the game, but the cutscene was a good moment between two warriors. After fighting through waves of high-level enemies, the companions make it to the bridge. The Ravager's bridge is massive, with a large viewing platform at the very nose of the ship, where Darth Nihilus stands with his back turned. There's a long walkway with Nihilus' zombies controlling the ship in lowered platforms on either side. Ominously, the zombies don't ever look up from their terminals. Darth Nihilus awaits. 
He stands alone on the bridge's viewing platform in flowing black robes and his signature white mask. Nihilus is a testament to the fact that you don't always need an amazing backstory or compelling dialogue to have a great character. Sometimes you just have to nail the aesthetics. Someone once said that no matter how many stories or movies Count Dooku appears in, he'll never be half as cool as Darth Nihilus, a character with no discernible dialogue who appears in this game for, at most, 20 total minutes. It doesn't matter that Nihilus doesn't talk because he's not there to talk. He's there to be a mysterious walking superweapon with a cool mask. This is where the problem of power creep comes to the forefront of our narrative for the first time. Power creep is the tendency for connected universes to continually up the ante on power, scale, and abilities of the characters over time. It's not necessarily a bad thing, as stories always need to innovate and change the stakes, but it does become an issue when the power escalates without being tied to the story. Luckily, that never seems to be an issue with Nihilus, despite him having the power to destroy all life in the galaxy. It's not an overstatement to say that Nihilus performs the most powerful use of the Force in any Star Wars story ever. Nihilus didn't just wipe out the population, he quite literally drained life from every living thing on the world. Every blade of grass, every creature, everything except Visa Smar. Nihilus didn't do this with a fleet or a superweapon the size of a small celestial body. No, he dropped out of hyperspace and the Ravager projected out into the Force and spoke a single word, purifying Qatar in an instant. His word was so powerful that the Mira Lucre on Qatar could see and feel it through the Force via their Force Sight ability. They watched helplessly as Nihilus spoke their genocide into existence. Nihilus drained the planet with such cataclysmic force that he cracked buildings and fractured large parts of Qatar's surface. What's worse is that he had done this to several outlying planets before Qatar, a galactus of the Star Wars universe of sorts. To put it literally, Darth Nihilus had become death, the destroyer of worlds. Oh, and he did all that after containing his consciousness within his armor, something that shouldn't be possible, according to the Jedi. Nihilus is a disembodied voice encased within some robes and a cool mask in the shape of a human, allowing him to wield a lightsaber and use force powers. With all that being said, the question becomes, uh, what the hell can the Exile do? How do you fight a god? Can you kill an elemental force of nature? Uh, though we don't see Nihilus very much in the game, his exploits are relayed throughout. We saw Nihilus throw Darth Treya into a wall, overpowering her through the force, which is no mean feat. After Treya's exile, Nihilus became the master and took Sion as his apprentice, because Nihilus was stronger, he somehow survived the activation of the mass shadow generator. He has scoured the life from multiple planets with nothing more than a single word. And he stocked the Sith fleet with the ships he pulled out of the orbital graveyard above Malachor V. As if all that wasn't enough, it is widely believed that Nihilus can render the galaxy lifeless. This isn't just hyperbole. Nihilus would annihilate all life in the galaxy to fill his hunger. Kreia, Atrus, the three Jedi Masters on Dantooine, Visus Mar, Darth Sion, and even Colonel Tobin all believe that it's not only possible but likely if Nihilus goes unchecked. No pressure or anything, it's just the death of all life. 
We've hyped them up now, but the question remains, how do mortals fight the god of death? Well, one way is through Visus Mar. Recall that she became Nihilus' apprentice after he ate everything on Qatar. This act formed a powerful force bond between master and apprentice, not unlike the one between Kreia and Surik. As we know from Kreia losing her left arm and Surik feeling the pain acutely across the mining facility on Paragus, those force bonds run both ways, so if one dies, the bondmate dies too. The other way they defeat Nihilus is via Sirik, because the Dark Lord's tricks might work on every other living thing, but he and the Exile were both reborn as wounds at Malachor V. His tricks don't work on another black hole in the forest like Sirik. So what do we say to the god of death? Not today. Perhaps unsurprisingly, there's not much to talk about with Nihilus. His speech sounds like someone trying to reconnect to AOL via a dial-up modem underwater. If you're too young to get that reference, don't worry about it. Surik, Candorus, and Visos Mar make it to the front of the ship, but are immediately incapacitated by Nihilus through the Force. Nihilus says something to which Surik responds that Telos IV doesn't have enough Force energy to sustain him and try a lie to him. This apparently enrages Nihilus, and Surik tells him that if he's so ready to feed on a Jedi, he should feed on her. The Dark Lord is happy to oblige, using his special brand of Force Strain on Surik, but the act hurts Nihilus, bringing him to his knees. Somewhere, Darth Traya is smugly smiling to herself. She's right once again. Trya knew that Nihilus had to be stopped or he would kill everything in the galaxy far, far away. She also knew that there was only one being in the galaxy powerful enough to stop the god of death, his mirror image. Surik was created by Malachor V just like Nihilus, and the two are meant to be bizarro versions of one another. Surik, the Force Black Hole, is what happens when you cut yourself off from the Force after becoming a wound. Nihilus, the insatiable force leech, is what happens when you give in and let the wound overwhelm you. Like each of the titular Sith Lords, Nihilus is another version of Surik, a tragic cautionary tale about the perils of giving in fully to the dark side and losing yourself. Like Surik, the man who became Nihilus was a force user who fought at the Battle of Malachor V and was present for the activation of the mass shadow generator. Like Surik, Nihilus went unconscious from the shock of experiencing all the death and pain on and above the world all at once through the Force. And, much like Surik, when he awoke, he was changed forever. But Nihilus didn't cut himself off. He instead dwelt on his own trauma and the wave of annihilation he just felt at Malachor V. Instead of a passive black hole in the Force, Nihilus gave into it and became an active force Dracula, seeking to consume to sate his wounds dying hunger. When Nihilus attempted to drain Surik through the force, there was nothing there except the void. Nihilus is used to the pain that comes with his existence, like the constant hunger he feels, but he's not used to being attacked or harmed by others. That hasn't happened to him in years. However, once any object, even force energy, crosses the event horizon of a black hole, it cannot be retrieved. 
The black hole may release that energy via other means such as hawking radiation in the real world or the use of force powers by Surik in this incredibly strained metaphor. It's an object lesson in cosmology that Nihilus just learned. Of course, Nihilus is still ridiculously powerful and has a ton of health points, so the fight isn't particularly easy even after bringing him to his knees. Nihilus wields a single red lightsaber and uses force powers liberally to the point of annoyance. He particularly enjoys using force lightning and life drain and can take half a health bar with a well-placed critical hit. So Nihilus is a pain in the ass regardless. Candorus fires a blaster from distance as Surik and Mar attack Nihilus directly, but the trio is losing the duel because Nihilus is just too strong. In a direct fight like this, even Surik can't take him because of his connection to the Force and ability to siphon it from others constantly. The companions fight Nihilus for some time, trading lightsaber blows and blaster shots, while the fleet battle rages outside the viewing window. When the game first released, players could only see the same ships flying in the same patterns repeatedly, but updated texture packs were released in the past 16 years, making the battle outside appear a little more lively. Within the Ravager, the companions realize that Nihilus is too powerful, and he uses Force Push to throw the trio back. In his current form, he cannot be defeated even by Surik's power to resist his Force Drain. But if you remember, we said that Visus Mar was one of the two secret weapons the companions had against Nihilus. At this point, the player can choose to continue fighting Nihilus, which will end poorly, or the player can have Visus attempt to disrupt Nihilus' link to the Force via their Force Bond. Surik obviously chooses the second option. This can be accomplished in one of two ways. Visas will offer to sacrifice her own life to disrupt the connection, but the exile can suggest that she meditate and attempts to sever the bond that way. The link between Nihilus and Mara isn't quite as strong as the one between Sirik and Trya, so a dark side exile who agrees to let Visas sacrifice herself won't kill Nihilus, just weaken him. As you know by now, Sirik wouldn't do that, and so we won't either. Instead, Sirik encourages her apprentice to focus on the light side, meditate, and attempt to subvert the bond. The Miraluga Jedi calls upon the Force and is able to subvert the Link, which undermined Darth Nihilus' connection to the Force considerably. Now he can die. And now we know why Trya didn't kill Visas on Dantooine during their brief confrontation. She knew Surik would need Mara's aid against Nihilus if, she was, if he was to be stopped, and she was absolutely right again. Trya left nothing to chance, and we certainly won't deny her this revenge. From here, the duel is far more straightforward as Nihilus has lost his huge reserve of force points and his health has been greatly reduced. Surik uses her two lightsabers to injure the Dark Lord further, Mandalore gets a few shots in, and Visasmara attacks ferociously with her, her blue double-bladed lightsaber. Sabers clash, but Nihilus is slowing, his time is nigh. We have variously described Nihilus as a living superweapon, a god, and even death, the destroyer of worlds, and each one of those descriptions is completely accurate. However, even the god of death has his kryptonite, and unfortunately for Darth Nihilus, both his kryptonites joined forces. Finally, after the Dark Lord has soaked up enough damage, Surik gets the killing blow, and Nihilus is no more. Before they flee, Visas goes to look upon Darth Nihilus through the force as she can truly see him. Surik agrees. 
When I ask that Mar retrieve her former master's mask, Mar kneels over the former Sith Lord, removes his mask, and sees him through the Force, and she can finally realizes, and she finally realizes the truth. Nihilus was never a god or some Lovecraftian horror bursting forth from the void. Instead, Visa saw that she saw the true form of Darth Nihilus, and he was quote a man, nothing more. End quote. This quote can be taken a number of ways, but it's probably personal to Visus Mar. A little more than a year before this, she was living peacefully on Qatar with many other Miraluka when, out of nowhere, Darth Nihilus attacked and killed everything on the planet except her. The act formed her first bond with Nihilus, and he made Visus Mar his new quasi-apprentice. She served in that role for about a year before defecting to Cirque's cause. In the time she knew Nihilus, he was the literal god of death to her, an almost wholly unknowable void for the dark side. He, it, his hunger existed on planetary scales. He had committed genocide against Mars people with a single word. How could Visus not see him as something more than a man? Men cannot do such things. But Mar didn't know what he had come from. She didn't know that he was a man before Malachor V hell until earlier in this mission she didn't know that nihilus was made at malachor 5 so when visa smart took his mask and looked upon her former master she finally saw his true form the man he had once been stepping away visa smart knew that she had made the the right decision game gaining a measure of closure just before the companions depart, the physical remains of Nihilus are consumed in an explosion of dark side energy complete with red lightning bolts and a red mist. When darksiders die and give off powerful blasts of energy, it is known as a dark side burst, not unlike the energy that shot up the reactor shaft after pa Palpatine was tossed down it in Return of the Jedi. In the end, all that remained of Darth Nihilus was a charred spot on the floor and the mask that Surik kept as a trophy. Darth Nihilus died in 3951 at an unknown age. He had ruled the Sith Triumvirate for somewhere between one to three years and continued the first Jedi Purge, leaving only three Jedi at the time of his death. Nihilus wasn't physically present for much of the game, but he's the larger-than-life figure who wielded power on heretofore incomprehensible incomprehensible scales but even with his seeming inv invincibility nihilus was still a mortal man and like all mortal men was thus doomed to die the trio of companions still have to escape the ravager the crew will have to fight their way out and plant four proton bombs around the ship however they will be delayed after one of the cores was detonated in a firefight between the mandalorian forces and sith troops Candorus is furious with his men, but they need another proton core, so they head to the missile bay, remove a core, and set the final charge. With the bombs ready, the companions race back to the transport shuttle and depart with their Mandalorian allies. When the shuttle is out of range, her gives the signal and the four proton bombs are detonated, blowing the Ravager to hell before it could crash into Citadel Station. Almost immediately, there's a cutscene between Trya and Sion on Malachor V, but we will come back to that next time in the interest of time. The, battle, the fleet battle is largely finished by the time Surik and her crew returned to Citadel Station. Republic fleet fought bravely and they took the upper hand before the death of Nihilus sealed the deal. 
Without their leader, the Sith fleet was systematically decimated by the Republic, and Citadel Station was fully cleared of hostile forces. The Battle of Telos IV was as was a close thing for a while, but it turned into a resounding Republic victory, their first victory against the Sith since the Battle of Arcata Prime in 3956. At Citadel Station, Sirik finds Republic Admiral Karth Onassi waiting for a private audience. Onassi proceeds to tell Sirik that he knows Revenant about their adventures from KOTOR 1, beginning with their time on the Endar Spire. Onassi wanted to accompany Revenant on his flight to the Unknown Regions, but Revan had tasked Karth with protecting the Republic in his absence. Onaski asks the exile to seek out Revan after this is over and help him face the mysterious threat in the unknown regions. Sirk agrees to the request and exits, headed toward the Iman Hawk. After Sirk departs, Bastila Shan enters, confirming that she survived the first Jedi Purge. She misses Revan and wishes she could have accompanied him on his journey, but stayed to aid the Republic at Revan's request like Karth. All that's left is to hope that Mitra Surik can stop Darth Trya from killing the Force on Malachor V. And that concludes our narrative for today. Thank you for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we will try to wrap up everything in a neat little package as we conclude the KOTOR 2 story with the duel between Darth Trya and the Exile. Trya's predictions for the future, and the final destruction of Malachor V. Follow us on Twitter at Photorpod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AtherthemKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you.